Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Delancey. If we were to take the key from the media, men haven't had the greatest of decades. Narratives of toxic masculinity, the patriarchy, or movements like Me Too have made a significant dent in the currency of men. On the other hand, patriarchy or macho figures such as Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin have cultivated followings that are difficult to read as pertaining to sex rather than to politics. Along all this, a battle over the definitions and relevance of sex and gender is ongoing. With all this, what does it mean to be a man? And what does it mean to be a good man? What do men want? Masculinity and its discontents by Nina Power considers these questions with a degree of optimism rarely seen in feminist literature. Nina is a philosopher, critic, and a cultural theorist. Her 2009 book, One Dimensional Woman, has been translated into multiple languages. I'm very happy that Nina joins me now for an interview that is likely not to pass the Bechdel test. Nina, welcome to the show. Thanks, Pierre. Nina, we're going to discuss your book, What Do Men Want? Masculinity and its Discontents. And your previous book was called One Dimensional Woman. So I have two questions. What is it with you and men and women? And what is it with you and punts? <laughs> well, I, I enjoy a good joke and I thought it would be amusing to reverse turn the tables on these two very famous phrases from male thinkers. So obviously, a one-dimensional woman is a joke about one-dimensional man, which isn't actually what Marcuse says in German, because mensch is human rather than man, (laughs) but it's a joke about the English translation. So one-dimensional woman is a joke about that. And obviously, what do men want is a reference to Freud's infamous question, what does a woman want or what does woman want? And... I I thought it'd be amusing. <laughs> and I suppose on the other question, I think that sexual difference is very interesting and worth discussing. Well, 
Should we, should we try to do that? I'm, I just want to disclose for listeners that Nina and I are friends, and this is probably take five of us giggling together in Nina's office. Um, and I hope that this won't mean that I'll be more soft with any of my questions than usually. In fact, I'm hoping to, to have an argument with Nina in a moment about the contents of her book and a few other things that she might have said to me off the record ill-advisedly. But before we get into any of this, maybe it will be a good idea to try to set out the situation which you try to confront with the, with the book. You open the book with the bold assertion that men and women exist, bold, of course, in scare quotes. Where are we? Why is it? Why does it continue to be necessary to talk about men? Why is it necessary to continue talking about women, given that we seem to have done very little else for the last 40 years? Well, I think there's there's sort of been a kind of confusion that's happened at the level of thinking about sex and gender, which has had all kinds of un- unpleasant effects. Um, gender is not a word that exists in many languages, uh, in fact, but it, it has become very dominant in the Anglosphere. And I suppose as we move into a kind of more immaterial and virtual age, the turn against the body and reality has become rather extreme in some quarters. Um, And I think actually depressingly so. I think a lot of people feel absolutely terrible about being embodied as a man or a woman. And I'm interested in how we can change that so that we can make people reconciled to their sex rather than feel miserable all the time. And I do think there are important differences between men and women um, that are being uh, ignored in favour of a kind of fantasy realm and the realm of identity, uh, which doesn't really bear any relation to reality. So I think we need to go back to thinking about sex as real and saying that it matters and that embodiment is central to who we are. We are our bodies. It doesn't mean that we are therefore reduced to our bodies as uh, sometimes people disingenuously think when we talk about biological sex. Um, but rather it's a, it's a fact whose the, the way in which we live it out is, is up to us. Um, but we can't escape it. And I think attempting to escape it leads to more harm than good. Let's try to define some of the problems with which you try to contend. Because, because the book doesn't stray into this realms of fantasies or ideology too much, even though quite a lot of the phenomena that you observe do have some kind of ideological connotation. But your book comes at the back of maybe a bit of a trend for for naming and shaming things like toxic masculinity at the back of the Me Too movement, which has had you know, fortunes and misfortune, has made changes to the way that people think about masculinity, how men are expected to think about themselves. And it's far from clear what effects and in a uniform way these kind of movements just have had on men. Should we start by understanding what a man is? Like, what kind of man are you talking about? Because that's a question that's so wide that to make some kind of generalization is almost as futile as trying to make a generalization about all, all women. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, as I say, men exist. It's a biological reality. Human beings are sexually dimorphic. There are two kinds of humans and we're all each one one or other of them, uh, including people with disorders of sexual identity who just who are development, sorry, who are basically uh, always male or female um, fundamentally. 
So there's no third sex. There's no position. There's no alien ob- observer. Um, we all live out our lives as one of each of each sex. And I think the generalizations actually come from the culture. I, I mean, obviously asking or trying to answer the question of what men want is a kind of joke. Of course, it's impossible. Mm. It's, it, I, I don't really uh, give, a, give a final a- answer as if there could be one. But what I'm responding to is the kind of generalizations that have become dominant that seem to often suggest, in the, particularly in the left and liberal media, that somehow all men are tainted by their manliness, that there are no good ways of being a man, that all masculinity is kind of inherently dangerous or awful, uh, must be changed, that men should feel guilty, that there should be even forms of reparation, you know, that, it, that they were at a historical moment at which men are supposed to reckon with their supposed privilege. Uh, and there's just been a kind of uh, general permission granted for uh, a kind of historical assault on men. Uh, and I'm interested in a more reasonable and balanced take, which reflects better the reality of people's lives, which is to say, for most women and for most men, their encounters with other men are generally positive or at least ambivalent. And lots of women, for example, would love their fathers and their brothers and their male friends and would be in nice relationships sometimes with men. So I wanted to suggest that there is room for a positive notion of masculinity um, and that some of the ways in which men are being discussed in terms of privilege and toxicity and the patriarchy are it's sort of inadequate um, for understanding other things, which would include class, for example. Oh, well, I'm I'm definitely grateful as a man if I can out myself at this 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 moment that you are taking my side and and <laughs> running to my defense so much. But you've just you've just ended on on what I was going to ask you about, which is the critical potential of some of the terminologies and and the whole whole theorizing industry that that masculinity and feminism is currently involved in. So you you devote one of the chapters in the book to the idea of patriarchy, and you you more or less go on to exp- to suggest that it's it's a construct that kind of has outlived some of its usefulness. But I wonder if you see any positive potential and kind of in the realm of, in your own interest, of realism, of realism of doing, po- doing politics between the sexes, whether there are aspects of some of the more combative conversations that are still somehow useful in developing the field that you are interested in. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think patriarchy is also itself a positive term in some ways, um, whether it's analytically useful or otherwise. Um, I think its mainstream use is, is largely kind of uh, inoperative, but I think it also indicates a kind of absence or a, a question to do with responsibility and who takes responsibility for who or what. You know, the old fashioned idea of the patriarch is the kind of head of the household, but it's also like characters in the Bible who are looking after generations, if you like. Uh, and actually, we're kind of absent of those sorts of figures in many ways. We're quite fatherless society and we live more like brother and sister uh which is to say more like rivals mm-hmm. um and which is kind of encouraged um by a sort of consumerism which pits us against each other um and also in terms of employment you know more or less all the jobs can be done indifferently by men or women you know and and sexual difference isn't really very important for most uh, contemporary jobs although men tend to still do the most dangerous jobs uh there's not much equality there um, I think 
you know, one of the important things for me is is to always say that women are not victims, women are not children, women are also adults. And that if we have conversations about violence and sex and all these things, that we don't reduce it simply to a kind of opposition between some kind of, you know, creepy, abusive, violent mm. set of people on the one hand and some kind of pathetic, you know, victimised creatures on the other. You know, I th- and I think the question of power and what status is, even if we want to say that the world is uh, patriarchal in certain ways, this is, this doesn't exhaust what we mean by power. And I think women have a lot of power. We might also want to ask ourselves whether what we value in our in our own lives. Do we really think that becoming a CEO, a woman becoming a CEO of a business is really the height of feminist achievement? Or are there, in fact, lots of other things that we're much more interested in that would actually be much more liberating and wouldn't involve the same kind of status games that a lot of people feel compelled to play. It's quite interesting. It strikes me reading reading through reading the book and now listening to you as well. That's it's not quite a paradox, but it reads like a paradox that at one point you want to reaffirm a certain binary, the binary of the sexes, but somehow reject some of the apparatuses which 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 grow on that, some of the binaries, the kind of Manichaean, you know, good and bad approaches. And I think that's that's some something that I, I find you incredibly optimistic in, but also I'm left with quite quite a lot lot of questions because on the one hand we we can I think agree that we are in the mainstream left with a very skewed understanding of what men and women represent because we are drawn to look at the extremes whatever they are and those you know those are obviously politically constructed and and aided by by neoliberalism in, in a kind of self-defeating way but at the same time if you want to maintain that biological difference exists check i'm not arguing there at all it is also to a certain extent necessary to to allow space for these for, for the difference to produce those extremes how how do we do with that and maybe maybe also at the same time like what is your kind of ideal case scenario what is what is your your vision for a harmony a harmonious way of way of living that that avoids this too much avoids this becoming becoming the main issue yeah i mean i i think there's a lot to to be learned from the the weight of human civilization you know i i think we live in a very stupid age that imagines that it's the most intelligent age and is precisely stupid because it thinks this. And I think people are bewitched and bewildered by technology and they assume that they're kind of modern and somehow beyond the same kind of feelings and emotions that human beings have always had. Whereas I think actually in different times and different places, there were, there were multiple kinds of virtues and ways of living together that we've kind of almost completely abandoned in the name of uh, a sort of banal desire and the sort of unspoken assumption or the axiom of liberalism, which is that desire is good and people should do whatever feels good. And this obviously mitigates against forms of pro-social behaviour, which often involve thinking about other people um, and I think this this becomes a big issue when we're talking about people having families and taking care of each other and themselves um, in favour of uh, a kind of deeply encouraged infantilism 
and a kind of perpetual adolescence, um, which is what the society sort of promotes uh, in many ways, I think. Um, so I think we need to look back at different cultures and not from this perspective of moral judgment or condemnation and to say that all of the all of these uh, situations were patriarchal, therefore bad, and that somehow we've transcended uh, these questions. I think there are lots of different ways of interacting between men and women, which are more or less playful. And so, for example, the ancient Greeks understood that to be strong wasn't simply to be physically violent. It was, in fact, knowing when to deploy violence. So it was a question of judgment and things that were valued included courage and loyalty. And these are values and virtues that anyone can possess, of course. Um, but I was particularly interested in what it might mean to think about being a good man today. And so moving away from this kind of universal condemnation idea, this kind of original sin of, of manliness uh, and saying, well, what would it actually mean to be better and to be a good man and to encourage men to think of themselves as improvable and not bound by this kind of uh, this sort of minimizing culture? Um, and also to help other men to avoid men also becoming too isolated and atomized and therefore resentful and potentially violent. So I'm also interested in solving this problem of male violence as well. Mm, that's, a, this is, that's really interesting. And you, you, talk, you, you mentioned now the idea of improvement and you, you mentioned in a book um, a whole industry of self-help, which I guess is an industry that's, that doesn't quite discriminate between men and women. Everyone is allowed to spend their pennies on feeling better for 10 minutes before they reach for yet another book. But to a certain extent, the, the idea that men would be improved from within seems to be a little bit taboo at the moment. There's, there's, for some reason, figures like Jordan Peterson, who's one of the characters in, in your book, is almost universally vilified by, by feminists or, or circles on the left. And, and whatever I want to think about Jordan Peterson, there is a level at which all he does is offer some kind of ba quite basic and quite simplistic moral guidance to a generation of men who I think quite fairly can be can be claimed to be lost, to be, you know, as you said, kind of fatherless to a certain extent. So how how do you see the potential of these kind of very basic basic messages? Like how how do we spread the good word without without reverting to either moralizing historical views or or kind of religious fervor that that quite often is the subject of critique and is mis mis misunderstood to lead into all sorts of cultish behaviours. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think maybe, you know, moralism or religion would even be better than, <laughs> <laughs> than liberalism. But um, yeah, I mean, I tried to say why, why, for example, someone like Peterson is, is very uh, popular. You know, he, it's important, I think, to understand why, what people see in him. And I think it is this kind of patrician father, you know, yes, what he says is kind of basic, but actually, most of us need that kind of basic thing to be told to us. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I, I, I suggest that, that, in fact, what Jordan Peterson and others in his sort of world realm suggest is actually beneficial to women. Because one of the things that he suggests is that men should sort themselves out. You know, they shouldn't rely on other women or, you know, a girlfriend or mothers 
to do all the work for them. In fact, they should become autonomous and sort their own life out, which actually takes the resentment away from the missing woman or the woman who's supposed to be doing all the work. So actually, I think it's uh, it's kind of helpful. And I think for everybody, it's like uh, this question of like, who does your health belong to? You know, which is a very political question. And particularly in the last two years, it's like, does your health belong to the state or does it belong to you? And what can you do to sort of, if you like, look after yourself without kind of blaming the culture around you or always giving in to your desire or, you know, becoming an addict or whatever. And I, I think this, the kind of self-help that's directed at men is often about getting them out of these these negative um, patterns of behavior, whether it's to do with porn addiction or drinking and saying or drugs or whatever, and saying instead, no, you can actually take hold of your own life. You can take responsibility for yourself. And in fact, by doing this, it's only by doing this Will you be in any position to offer a woman, if that's what you want, any form of uh, something that she might desire? And obviously, we're talking largely about straight you know, relationships here. Um, it's interesting when I was looking at the relationship between the kind of the gym culture and this kind of culture of fitness. Um, sometimes men would start off doing it because they wanted a girlfriend. And then at a certain point, it just became an end in itself, like it just became enjoyable for its own sake and and that actually was about hanging out with other men and you know just enjoying the company of men and and, and so it t- took it out of that kind of uh you know desire or need for uh finding a partner i'm still thinking about the way in which quite a lot of the conversation that usually starts with jordan peterson but ends up be- being being around against the alt right ends up seeing the kind of so- homosocial relationship that you describe, the you know the, the the people who go to the gym and are just into that for its own sake, like they they get rolled up into this whole you know discourse about radicalism, white supremacy, and and incels. I've been thinking about incels, and I've been looking at some of the mainstream research on on incel culture recently, and I've been finding like my my instinct is that we we get quite a lot of this wrong. Do you have do you have a, a theory of why these things come so closely together? Yes, yeah, so so I guess there's quite a prominent discourse in left liberal media which suggests mm. that the manosphere, the the idea of the red pill, you know, seeing the world as it as it as it actually is, uh, as as they would put it, um, and that the kind of bodybuilding culture and the no fat movement, which is to do with men uh, wanting to stop watching pornography and and stop being dominated by their urge to masturbate you know, which I think is very positive if people want to stop doing that. These are often portrayed and, and you know, this idea of incels, these involuntary celibate men who are supposedly potentially violent, you know, and, and there, there have been a kind of a few very uh, rare instances of men who are associated with incels, although it's not a group, it's not like there's a membership card. So hmm. you always have this issue about whether someone is something, you know, if you see what I mean, it's like this person did some terrible action is it the responsibility of, of a supposed forum? Yeah, so it's, it's perfectly possible to be single and depressed and not not have that hashtag in their profile. Yeah, sure, exactly. So there's kind of all these kind of usual questions of cultural causation, which have been going on forever. You know, if you listen to, I don't know, particular music, are you more likely to be violent and so on? So, you know, I, I but I think that they, there is a tendency to, on the left and left liberal media to, both want people to be to demonize like you're allowed to for example hate people who hate this is permitted mm. hatred 
So if you say that there's a group of men who say hate women, then you're allowed to hate them. I think there is a way in which uh, these dispossessed young men who are often very poor and working class, living in very deprived areas where there aren't really many jobs. Um, there's a very good documentary by Alex Lee Moyer on incels um, called TFW No GF, where um, she interviews some men who would associate with that movement and and they're very funny and very self-deprecating and they, they often live in very you know, depressed parts of America, not in the liberal main cities. Um, and they have a very different experience of reality than the people who are attacking them. So I, I don't know, there's a way in which it's sort of okay to bash certain groups of people, right? And, you know, this, this sort of uh, promulgation of resentment is part of the media discourse in a way, and which is dominated really by a kind of a liberal mindset. So anything outside of that is likely to be called, you know, alt-right or far-right or whatever, even where it bears no relation to any of those things historically or politically whatsoever. I mean, there's nothing inherently right-wing about wanting to look after yourself and get fit, you know. I mean, the left, for example, used to be extremely critical of big pharma. You know, if you read Illich and if you read, uh, you know, many uh, left and up until quite recently, the left were very sceptical of consumerist uh, and pharmacological solutions to health problems. You know, the left would say you need to look after your own health and eat healthily and exercise and do all these things. And now suddenly these things are attached to the right, um, which doesn't really make any sense unless you unless you imagine that left liberal governments uh, are quite happy for you all to, to die, which is probably the case, frankly. Oh, that's cheerful. I was going to accuse you of harboring cruel optimism in the book, but I think that's just been wiped away in that one statement. But look, we've, we've taken ourselves into industrial towns and, and white working class men. And that's something that I think is quite, quite important to dwell on for maybe a little bit longer, because, because the preoccupation of some of the critical apparatuses that we we engage with, I think, is never to do with those kind of communities. But on the back of this, I want to ask you about your method. So in as much as we're not really going to find out what men want, because that's a fool's errand, as, as it was with Freud, how much time did you spend in the former Red Wall working class communities in northern England talking to, to men outside nightclubs? I mean, this is a facetious question, but again, how can we reduce sex to, to this kind of monoculture, again, in which in which we can separate any of these things? Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I say precisely again, against those generalizations, you know, that the question of class rarely comes into those generalizations that are being made about toxic masculinity and so on, you know, and, and actually, this idea of male privilege clearly doesn't really apply to people who are living to men who are dying of like opioid overdoses yeah. in like poor parts of America or you know men who are committing suicide because they don't have any social role i think the the reduction to sex is something that's happening elsewhere you know in a way it's like i'm saying sex is real absolutely sex is real it's important um and we can't kind of hand wave it away um but sex doesn't tell you anything about how you're going to live your life it doesn't tell you anything about the meaning you attach to sex and so on it just says that it's a fact and, you know, there may be other more salient facts when you look at somebody's life. It, questions of class and geography and, uh, and all of these kinds of things. At the same time, we can talk about broader trends. So, 
the movement in in employment in this country, the kind of destruction of manual labor where men dominated, you know, I took place quite a long time ago at this point, you know, in my lifetime, but under Thatcher, um, you know, and the very deliberate political shift towards what might be described as feminized work. And this is what I discussed in the first book um, about the feminization of labor and the way in which employment is moving towards things that don't require kind of forms of physical labor and physical skill. Um, and in that sense, everyone has sort of become womanish, <laughs> you know, and at least those are the sort of um, skills and values that are rewarded. And I think we can also see this negatively in the kind of social uh, online sphere where everyone has become like a mean girl and sort of pathetically bitchy. Um, whereas I think people should, you know, men should go back to sorting out things like with jewels and, you know, face to face and jewels. Yes. Right. I mean, I, I happen to know that earlier this week you you were pretty much cut off by a producer of the BBC for saying something similar. So yes. should I offer you an opportunity to expand on this thought sure. and and and, uh, and and advocate violence in the street? Yes, I, I think that, you know, what we're talking about, especially when we're talking about male energy, you know, men are more violent than women. They're responsible for the vast majority of interpersonal violence against each other, against themselves and against women. The question of how a culture deals with male violence is obviously uh, always very important. You can ritualize it. You can make it to do with sports. You can make it to do with sex. You can make it to do with culture. You can repress it and you can generate other things as a consequence. Uh, I don't think we're ever going to eliminate male violence, but we obviously want to, let's say, direct it, um, not uh, towards situations which destroy the social fabric, but rather improve it. Um, and so my my joke, uh, it's, you know, it's slightly jokey, I suppose. But, you know, if we have a world in which uh, male violence is not expressed in the correct way, uh, not ritualized, not a matter of etiquette, as in the duel, um, it will come out in other ways that are not necessarily uh, better either. And I think this kind of condemnation, again, of these generalizations about men being violent and rapists and so on, is actually worse, far worse than my optimistic uh, claim, which is to say that most men are not like this. Most men will never rape or murder anybody. Um, we're all capable of harm. We're all apex predators, after all. And so, but at the same time, to offer men this idea of improvement, the same as we can all improve, um, and to channel their negative energies into um, more structured and ritualistic activities so I, I suggest we might need to come up with new rituals because there aren't very many rituals left in our culture do you, do you have suggestions well I, I mean you know there I guess there's lots of I mean people play football and you know maybe a bit more wrestling you know I think I think people shouldn't be afraid to wrestle <laughs> People shouldn't be afraid to wrestle. I no. mean, that's, 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 that's a poor quote for, for when we typed this up. I've been thinking about, I think your book touches on this and, and with your conversation so far now, but I keep on thinking in debates to do with equality about the question of solidarity and how somehow the two are almost contradictory. And you've, you've essentially alluded to this, how the denial of difference somehow doesn't really allow for that much productive exchange between agents who, who are different. Like, what happens to solidarity? How can people live together and exchange their values when, when there's no difference between them? Like, what happens when 
all near-level subjects are equal, but by that virtue, equally weak. Yeah, I mean, there's a rich history of kind of socialist and Marxist feminism on this topic. I mean, if you read Colin Tai, she's very interested in in precisely how working class men and women can feel solidarity with one another, in fact, Mm. um, in the midst of difference and their different experiences of childbirth, let's say, or, you know, their physical being. Um, So I think there are, yeah, absolutely, you know, to understand each other in an empathetic way is not to downplay the difference, but rather to engage in superior forms of imagination. To to think better what it's like for the opposite sex, I think I think sometimes people feel terrified to do this. I don't know. I think a lot of men are very afraid to think about what female physical life is like. I think they they don't want to think about motherhood or birth or you know any of these sort of yucky things. <laughs> and I think a lot of younger women are afraid of it, thinking about it too. Um, because it's almost too real, it's too visceral, and don't we live in a way beyond those things? Don't we live in a kind of civilized, modern world that completely downplays these extremely animalistic and violent um, aspects of biology? And I think actually a lot of people just really hate themselves and therefore blame their mothers and therefore hate women. So I think there's like deep misogyny in our culture and deep hatred of mothers in particular, um, which is something that absolutely should be changed. Um, I think when women speak in public, particularly about issues that concern them, they are often attacked in a very extreme way. Um, And, you know, to go back to the point about equality, there's equality in all different realms. You know, if we're talking about political equality, are we talking about suffrage and representation? Are we talking about representation in the political discussion you know this is only about 100 years old in this country uh it's not you know a happy business you know men Mm. and women do have conflicting Mm. desires uh women are often not listened to in this regard um you know we can talk about democracy as a celebration of equality um but it really depends what kind of equality we're talking about you know to have uh universal suffrage is one thing to imagine that therefore there are no differences between men and women is is another, um, which is completely stupid. And and you know I mean like for example women's sports. I mean it's very obvious that women are not as strong as men in certain ways. They're stronger in other ways, but they're not stronger when it comes to most sports. Um, and the idea that we can kind of uh, ignore that or pretend that that's not a problem is just frankly really depressing for women who are experts in their field. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I feel like, yeah, solidarity. I feel terrible for women who train all their lives only to be beaten by some man who decided last week that he's a woman in a, in a sporting event, for example. So I think when we talk about equality, we have to be really clear which realm we mean, you know, political, social, legal, I don't know, cultural, sexual, and so on. It's not just a net, it's not just good in and of itself, just because we come to associate this word with, I don't know, pr- progress or a progressive narrative. Um, equality can also be used to harm 
difference as well and to and to actually harm groups that need different kinds of protection and segregation yeah so sport is kind of interesting not that i want to get into the details but you in the book you have a I think the only one time where you really have a go at men and it's for their behavior in the swimming pool. Apparently, we are too aggressive when you, for some reason, elect to share a lane with us. Very ill-advisedly, I have to say. So that is my one one protest. Well, I, I know you love swimming. Yeah, and I know that you are probably... I'm very aggressive in the water. I was like, going to yeah. say, I thought you'd be incredibly well-mannered and well-behaved as you no, are. No, no, I think it, it, it kind, of, kind of decomposes. In fact, no, we were talking so earlier with, about... you agree with me? I probably agree with you on, on, on some aspects of, of the sports question. But, you know, you asked me earlier whether I, have, I can admit to any acts of misogyny in, in my <laughs> life. And, of course, there, there are many because, because I've been awake and I've been in the street and I've met a woman before and I also have a mother... <laughs> But like, you know, after the like 10 incidents in my life when I'm ashamed of having said something to someone, like the, the most recent one is me flipping out at a, at a woman at a swimming pool. I think it's just <laughs> the water does something to me, you know, and of course, well, this, I, of course yeah. I apologized, but, but and, and you thankfully wrote a book to absolve me of, <laughs> of all my guilt later. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I'm not the only woman who's noticed this, but yeah, it's, it's a sort of, it, it was a, you know, it's, it's a lighthearted comment but it's it's to do with this yeah so these these particular places where sometimes this kind of i don't know masculine urge to dominate and to territorialize and to take over all the room seems to have just just come out water is the one place in which to send like i mean we can't piss around the pool and like mark our territory it just <laughs> washes washes away it's it's the most futile futile way of marking one's territory Yes, I mean, I mean, it may maybe it's a kind of you know interuterine memory. You know, it's like some sort of way of you know trying to to dominate the womb. You know, the the kind of the lack of choice. I mean, write, write that book. Do write that book, yeah, please. Yeah, I mean, like... this is the sort of books that, that kind of Jungian feminists were writing in like the seventies and eighties. You know. I ask you facetiously about your your research and you know how your your sample size of the kinds of men that you spoke to and how do we even conceptualize the fact that we, that we were to talk about men an entity that so often we end up having to talk about women like essentially your book is a is a feminist argument it just happens to be looking at the other side I mean I'm doing it a bit of an injustice here you do actually look at your subject in quite a lot of detail and you look at material not from the female experience exclusively but the female experience is always there um whereas in feminist conversations men don't necessarily have to be looked at in the with the same level of care and treading mildly carefully, there's also a bit of an asymmetry in some of the ideological and political conversation around trans men and trans women. Like there's one side of this transition ends up gaining something, the other maybe not so much. Do you, like do, do men get to be able to define themselves, as we've already mentioned, without reference to women? But and is there some kind of asymmetry, which means that women are not afforded the same privilege? Like, can we have some kind of separatism that that helps us ideologically or at least theoretically? And yeah, I think it's a really interesting question and a very deep one. I, you know, I obviously I wanted to write a book about men, but it did end up in large part being about the relationship between men and women. Right? It's a book about heterosociality 
ultimately. It's about how we get along or don't get along in the world as it is, which is a mixed world. It's not a segregated world. And I think there is maybe more room for sex segregated activities. I think maybe the pendulum has swung too far towards the mixing and uh, we might need to go back to having a more separate life in some ways and then coming together more beautifully at other times. I mean, of course, I'm not talking about looking after children, which would require both parents, but rather, um, I don't know, almost like as a kind of form of ritual uh, behaviour um, to have those those things. If you think about, I don't know, when people used to learn how to ballroom dance and then go to <laughs> balls and, you know, they would meet people there, but it was a rare occasion, you know, yeah. a very exciting one, you know, whereas now you can just download an app and, you know, screw someone from down the road and who gives a fuck you know you can watch netflix and order a pizza and it's all very boring and banal and uh so i think we need some more magic and re-enchantment in this kind of free song of difference um it i did look at some male separatist movements so like migtow which is men going their own way which is a small tendency a trend towards some men just kind of completely abandoning what they see as the corrupt uh dating economy and some of some of these men are quite misogynist they they maybe have had a bad experience a bad relationship or marriage that's broken down they generalize from this bad experience and therefore they they say that all women are gold digging bitches or whatever and uh you know then they go off and do their own thing um that's fine i think this is you know we should absolutely allow for uh the expression of uh, a single life, uh, whether it's a spiritual single life or just people who are not interested in having a partner or reproducing. And, and, and MGTOW are very big fans of, of uh, Jesus, you know, who doesn't have uh, children unless you're a member of a weird heretical sect. Uh, he, they, they like uh, a lot of uh, sci- science figures and philosophers. So there are quite a lot of very um, important men who didn't reproduce, and they say that sixty percent of men historically don't reproduce, which is actually kind of an interesting thing to think about. Is that is that the case? I don't know. I, I mean, it's certainly the case that actually a lot of men don't reproduce, and it's surprisingly high. And if you think about the numbers of men who were slaughtered in the world wars, who yeah. never had children. Um, war is obviously uh, a great sacrifice that men pay for the mm. preservation of society, um, you know, which I think is also not often acknowledged enough, you know, that these that that men die so that society will thrive, um, at least historically. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. And, and I try to compare that to the kind of lesbian separatist movement, which is also a very small part of uh, 1970s feminism. Um, and what it would actually mean to try to live in a world that has the other, the opposite sex in it. <laughs> How far can you escape? I mean, there's obviously places like Mount Athos in particular, which doesn't even have female animals. Uh, it's a male-only, you know, orthodox island, Greek island, uh, the monastery. And, yes, you know, no female animals, or they, they, they can't go down to the insects. So they, you know, there might be female insects on the island, but there is certainly no female animals or, or female humans i think the idea that everybody should be everywhere all the time is 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 a false fantasy and i don't know i mean there if you look at the manosphere you know these kind of this this world of online men talking about men men's things the there are enormous numbers of spaces where men are talking to each other and talking to themselves without women 
you know, mm. and often being very encouraging, actually. And like the incel forums are very like often about upbuilding. I mean, yeah, they're rude and, you know, jokey and filled with memes and often horrible. And but there's a lot of actually mutual support for men uh, on those pl- and those places as well. Lots of lots of like men encouraging other men to, you know, get fit, stop drinking, you know, be better, so on. Yeah, I it's it it is difficult to write a book about just men. You know, the most masculinist books I looked at were the ones that were like 30-day challenges where like you had to kind of give up, you know, porn, sex, you know, do 300 press-ups a day, but also interestingly, you had to read good books. Oh. This is also part of these kind of uh, you know, boot camp type things, you know. It was also about improving your mind. So a lot of this masculine stuff is not only just about bodybuilding and looking good. It's not even really about that. It's about, you know, sorting yourself out, being fit, not being dependent on women or drugs or alcohol or the state and also improving your mind, you know, actually compensating for perhaps the crap education you received, you know, and actually taking control of your own of your own thoughts. You know, which from a from a state that wants you dependent on them is quite dangerous. And I think that's why a lot of these groups are designated as alt-right or yeah. far-right or whatever. Well, there's a group you missed. And I know that you've been doing interviews back to back for the last two weeks. So to, to, to give you a little treat, I thought we could switch around a little bit and give you an opportunity to interview me a little bit, Nina. And for, the reason for this is that... Maybe because we were not hanging out that much when you were writing the latest version of the book during the pandemic, you you failed to produce a chapter about gay men. Yes. Um, and not that I particularly have anything to say, but one of the things that really came to my mind that I was reading, reading the book is a little kind of throwaway joke that I used to make when I was in my 20s, like someone would call me a young man and I would folk and respond saying, oh, are you calling me a man? Not that I'm in any sense or conceive of myself as camp or it's this kind of affectation that was produced by by the company of men who at some cultural level still don't want to see themselves as men. The, the queer sphere as it is constituted now is filled with so many contradictions which at one level, present themselves as being so magnanimous and being an ally to everything and anyone. But it still maintains this reserve, this fantastic right to be utterly, utterly misogynistic. And and actually fails quite often at aspects of homosociality that, that we that we discussed earlier. Do you have any questions for a gay man who, who, <laughs> yes, who, would, I mean, who would be as annoyed at not having been written into no, this particular I, I, book? I, you know, I explicitly say in the introduction, this is not a book about gay men. It's also not a book that goes into depth about sports mm. and other things. It's also very, like, Western-centric and, mm. you know, all of these other crimes. I mean, I think the reason why I didn't want to talk about gay men, although there is obviously some overlap with the kind of... Um, uh, you know, the bodybuilding community and figures yeah. like Bronze Age Pervert are very interesting in their kind of provocation where they often use very gay, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the kind of classical image of ma- uh, male beauty for the Greeks yeah. and the Romans is obviously been recoded as a kind of, ho- you know, not only, but, but predominantly homosexual mm-hmm. image. You know, these kind of bronzed, 
uh, rippling, you know, bodies, right? There's a kind of... Gosh, we, need, we might need a chaperone <laughs> to continue this in a moment. Okay. We, go on, go on. But, go on. you know, there's a kind of gay recoding of that and, and somebody, you know, like people, figures in the in the dissident right, so-called or whatever, play around with that because it's funny, because it's like a undecidable, you know, indeterminacy. Yeah. And, you know, there there is something kind of funny and ridiculous about going back to classical aesthetics and trying to resurrect them in the age of the internet um you know i find this very amusing and i and i think yeah i mean i think maybe my trepidation about writing about homosexual men um i think in my experience gay men are either very misogynist or very uh phylogenist um which is not a word you hear often enough but um in you know i think there's sometimes a way in which gay men because they're so um not interested or even disgusted by female bodies including their mothers bodies that they um i don't know sort of seek to distance themselves from women in every kind of respect and almost end up regarding women as or sometimes as rivals honestly as straight men you know yeah. Uh, I think uh, Douglas Murray has written about this. Uh, it's very weird to read this kind of thing, actually, to imagine oneself as a as a woman who likes men as being in any way a rival to a gay man. But mm. for the gay men, I think, who want to have sex with straight men or straight acting men, then women are opposition. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're trouble. So um, there's that. Um I think we see extreme misogyny from people like Owen Jones, figures gay men on the left, and, and many men on the left, not not only gay men at all, by any means, actually. I think a lot of heterosexual men on the left would like, no- like nothing more than being allowed to hate certain women, you know, women who have the wrong view or think that sex matters in particular. Uh, and, you know, honestly, the last sort of five, six years, the levels of, of left male left misogyny have been extraordinary. Um, on the other hand, I think there is sometimes a, a deep sympathy between gay men and women, which is much more interesting and much more complicated. And it's partly to do with an identification with a role, whether it's sexual or otherwise, but also with a kind of um, attitude to life itself. And I can see why in the kind of male or gay community that there is sometimes a playing with not only with femininity or camp, but also with the language of womanhood. And I think there is absolutely, you know, this is very interesting. And I'm 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 a strong defender of the demi monde. I think, you know, there is a, a grey area in social and sexual life which should be largely tacit and yeah. that people can engage in and with if they like, but it's a kind of secret private thing. It shouldn't be kind of imposed as the new uh, way of doing things or even celebrated particularly uh, not least because I think it destroys the interesting aspect of it um, so I don't know let, well let's let's turn it back to you I think that <laughs> oh I was, I was afraid you might remember gay... that, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah so what do, what so let's ask you what do gay men want I did actually I did actually ask a friend of mine a gay friend of mine what do gay men want and he said to take drugs and fuck until we die yeah, that's definitely a view that I have I have seen reproduced and lived out by many people. A friend of mine, Peter Darney, wrote a very successful play called called Five Guys Chilling, which 
I guess you wrote about 10 years ago, and that was a really beautiful study of the kind of chemsex culture, which was really rampant in London at the time, and I'm pretty sure hasn't really died out that much. Maybe the drugs have changed, and maybe the prevalence of HIV has slightly slightly dropped. I think it's almost the same fool, fool's errand as it is with, with your question in your book. Gay men want the same million different things, and they're driven by the same unrealizable unconscious desires as, as anyone else in a way in a, the, the kind of conversations that you and I've had before I've, I've talked to you about having sexual desires that have led me to really exploit the kind of promiscuity and liberated algorithmically mandated sexual behaviors that are completely normalized within the gay community in square quotes but also being able to flip within a minute towards having completely traditional desires of a stable partner and a dog even though i have made bad jokes about how all gay men cannot you know cannot face the the fact that they cannot bear children so they all want to have a dog like that's become kind of a substitute um, but I think what what has been quite interesting at the back of what you were saying about the kind of levels of misogyny and how the gay sphere has become integrated into the very the very activist political sphere, and and that's because to be gay is no longer so special. It to be gay is barely anymore a claim to some kind of protected status, which in this kind of gradation of identities, which in which I was, you know, from a solidarity perspective, as I mentioned before, gay men are now, I think, probably underneath the straight man to a certain extent. The gay man who has won and enjoyed the privilege, the freedom for a long time, we've got gay marriage under a conservative government. It's all absolutely fine. In any, as in any minority, our identities keep on multiplying and we keep on splintering to smaller and smaller bits, just like the debates about femininity that are, um, or feminism that are completely jamming media at the moment. Whatever's happening to gay men is also manufactured for a spectacle. Yeah. To, the, the, the personal doesn't, I mean, I would go as far as saying that the personal is not political by default in all circumstances. But it has to be, because that's of use to Twitter, it's of use to Grindr, it's of use to all forms of capital, and therefore it becomes absorbed as a kind of tacit desire of the neoliberal subject. So I'm, yeah. afra I'm afraid we're stuck in just the same way. But we have the possibility to jump at any one answer that looks kind of cl crystal clear at any one moment. You know, like the gym and Grindr, they're all completely fine. And they're all, they're all very alluring. But the one thing that you also see in your book for straight men isn't all that easy. The relationships that going on, on normal civilized dates and talking to people about how you feel and owning, taking responsibility for who you are, that remains difficult. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, no, no, exactly. And I think, I mean, I talk in the book about touch and the confusion around touch today and like the you know, the absolute fear and paranoia of, of intimacy and, and, you know, of making a mistake and this kind of very unforgiving culture, you know, and it's almost like the thing, it's like you can go and watch hardcore porn in HD and then have like, and then like rim someone and then, you know, whatever. And then, but, but actually like to tell someone that you like them, you know, would be like <laughs> devastating, you know, this would be like impossible. <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, this oh. is, 
it's so it's such a terrible world where you can't sort of have where you can't tolerate ambi- ambiguity or difficulty in these very very delicate ways actually you know in social life and this is why i think people are very have have been turned away and are turning away from um the gray areas of social life because of an inability to bear complexity and ambiguity because these things they're very small but they're very painful you know it's much easier to i don't know find someone who'll beat the shit out of you and then you know eat pizza with them than it is to to <laughs> have that's, a... that's what i did last night on my <laughs> date but listen you you've you've talked about the ambiguity now maybe this is this is a good moment to to get back to your optimism and ask you the last question you you talk about games and the way that men and women play games with 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 each other in the book and i think maybe this could be a good way to, to kind of leave us with with um with a commandment of what it is that we could all, all do tomorrow until later today to feel happy about who we are <laughs> set us a game and and well, hope, is it going to be dungeons and dragons <laughs> no although i did play dungeons and dragons i was an elf ranger called Jebediah Moonstone. I had a bow and arrow. I have no idea what this means. It was great. Um, (laughs) (laughs) A long time ago. Um, Well, I think think actually just reflection on the the reality of the multiplicity of our involvement with each other. You know, so, so again, to get away from these kind of dominating negative narratives and to think about all of the different relationships that we have with the opposite sex, you know, as friends, as family, as colleagues as you know and and a lot of these are not wholly bad or wholly good mm. they're a lot of them are fleeting some of them are meaningful some of them are ambiguous some of them are complex some of them are wonderful some of them are both awful and great um and i, I think you know people already live in that world this very mixed world and this very um complicated world and i think it's just maybe ignoring these these sorts of forces that try to generate resentment uh, on the basis of faulty generalizations. And I think we, yeah, I, I think we should, there should be more gray areas, more flirting, more silliness, uh, more lighthearted humor, and people should stop pretending to take offense for attention points. Well, do we need a break for a hug right now? <laughs> no, well, I mean, now that you've sorted out this this particular set of problems, because everything is going to be fine as we as we get back get on with our games. What's next for you? Um, well, I don't know. I I don't have an academic job anymore. I left them all. But you are writing no no fewer than two books, I understand, and I, you have a podcast that I think sure, I, I'd I, like to at I, least recommend to our listeners. I do a weekly podcast called The Lack with the uh, amazing Helen Rollins and incredible Benjamin Studebaker, where we usually discuss a film from a philosophical, political and psychoanalytic perspective. And I have a substack. I'll put I'll put links to all of this in the show notes. Yes, and I I will write some more things probably soon. Probably soon. <laughs> Thank you very much, Nina. Thanks, Pierre. What do men want? Masculinity and its discontents by Nina Power is published by Alan Lane. I'm Pierre Dalance, and the editor was Marshall Poe. Thank you for listening and join us next time. Thank you.